morning. It's really good to be here with you this morning as we continue worshiping. Uh, we're going to worship now by digging God's word together uh, and seeing what we can, uh, how we can grow today. Uh, for those joining us on live stream, I'm so glad you're here with us. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Randy. I'm a pastor elder and a member of the teaching team here at Lakeside. Today we're going to reach a climatic point in Matthew's gospel, a point where Jesus asks his disciples uh, a very pointed question, a question that is the ultimate question, not only for the disciples, but also for everybody. Who is Jesus? Let me tell you a bit about how I might have answered this question. Many, many moons ago in my freshman year, my college days, um, how would I describe myself back then? Well, I was a guy that everybody liked, and I went out of my way to help everybody. Um, without bragging too much, I was pretty smart with big plans to be successful and earn a lot of money. And if you haven't caught on yet, I was also pretty full of myself. Uh, now, I can tell you some things that weren't so good. Uh, you see, I worked really hard at putting forth that good face. But on the inside, well, I was pretty insecure, and I struggled with a really low self-esteem. See, I was a people pleaser, but for all the wrong reasons. One thing's for sure, I didn't know anything about this man named Jesus. I did have a couple of Christian guys that came to me one day, and they asked me uh, if I knew him, and, and we started talking, and as we talked, they shared more about Jesus. And as they got to the end of it, they asked me if I would like to follow Jesus. I thought, well, okay, I guess, sure. So I accepted, except I had no idea who Jesus was, and it had zero impact on my life. If you had pressed me at that time and asked me, who is Jesus, I think that my answer would have been, in fact, I know it would have been, he was a good guy who lived a long time ago. That was about it. About six years later, my answer changed um, through some other Christian friends who came and shared their lives and, and their message with me and their faith. In hearing sermons, I asked a bunch of questions, and God touched my heart, and I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I became a new man after that. Looking back, I can tell you that I am not the same person. It's like that version of me doesn't exist anymore. Recognizing who Jesus is changes your life. So this morning, we're going to dig into some uh, different responses to this question that have been recorded by Matthew in his gospel. I hope by the end we can all know the true answer to this question, the ultimate answer. It's both the ultimate answer and uh, the, what it means, our big idea for today. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But his purpose in coming is to die on our behalf. So turn with me, if you will. We're going to be looking at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21. We're going to go through it pretty much one verse at a time. So I'll be taking my time at this. And we're going to start with just verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi, which is just north of Israel. As we've seen over the last few messages, they've been north and outside of Israel for a while. 
but they're about, Jesus is about to make his final trip to Jerusalem. And as he does so, he switches gears. From this point on, in Matthew's gospel, the focus changes. And Jesus is changing to uh, teach and prepare his disciples for what's going to happen when he reaches Jerusalem. He will be killed, he will be buried, he'll rise again, and eventually he will ascend into heaven. He starts by asking the disciples how people view him. He's often referred to himself as the Son of Man, and he uses that title again in this question. Now, the disciples are Israelites, so they would understand the title to be about the long-promised Messiah who has come to help them, to rescue them. Now, the people have had plenty of evidence to help them answer this question correctly. He's fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy, and he's pointed them out as he's gone along. He's performed more miracles than we can imagine. Everywhere that he went, people brought to him the sick, the handicapped, the demon-possessed, and he's been 100% effective in healing all of them. He's even raised multiple people from the dead. He's calmed storms. He's fed thousands. He's taught with unmatched authority. The book of John ends with this amazing statement. John 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's a lot. So with all of this evidence, we'd assume that people could easily get the correct answer to this question. So let's look at their answers according to the disciples in verse 14. And they said... Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. We think that with all this evidence, they can get the right answer, but they don't. So let's first take a look at the answers that they do give and why they're incorrect. John the Baptist. Well, this was Herod's answer, and it's an impossibility because John and Jesus, well, they lived at the same time. Elijah. Well, the prophet Malachi had... Um, prophesied of the coming of Elijah, but he was speaking of someone who would fulfill the role of Elijah. And Jesus has already said that it was John the Baptist who fulfilled that role. Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. The problem here is that the prophets were the ones that were prophesying about the Messiah, and Jesus is actually fulfilling all of their prophetic promises. The people in Jesus' time were willing to believe all sorts of impossibilities, but not accept the truth. And you know, we're the same today. People are the same today. People will come up with all sorts of answers to the question, who is Jesus? And if we were to ask that question today, well, some of the answers that we get might be a great teacher, an amazing leader, or awesome leader, Uh, This is a popular one. He is one of the ways to heaven. He's a good man to imitate. These are also incorrect because they don't fully answer the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is more than a good teacher or an awesome leader. He is God. He is not one way to heaven. He is the only way to heaven. And since we're sinners, it's impossible for us to fully imitate Jesus who was perfect. 
I think a lot of us fall into the trap of believing that if someone saw a miracle, then that would convince them of this truth. But the people of Jesus' time saw more miracles than were ever recorded in history, and they still didn't believe. This is a good thing to remember when we're trying to help people to find and follow Jesus. We can't argue, convince, um, coerce, or persuade people into faith. Jesus, he showed us a good example of how to do this. Just take a step back and consider that we're halfway through our study of the book of Matthew. Jesus has called his disciples, and he's walked with them for several years. And it's at this point that he asks them this question. He shared his life, his knowledge, his wisdom. He shared scripture with them. He shared so much more with them. In effect, he has shown them in many, many ways who he is. But only God can reveal himself to a person's heart. So as followers of Jesus, we're called to do the same thing. We're called to live our lives with, to share our love, our wisdom, to share scripture with the people that are in our lives and let God touch their hearts. Getting back to our text, we see that Jesus apparently doesn't remark about how people view him. At least Matthew didn't record it as important. He immediately asks the second and most important question in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? It's similar to the first question, but with a couple of key uh, changes. First, he switches from people, i.e. them, to you. It's a personal question. And as such, he switches from the third person, son of man, to the first person, I. Knowing Jesus is personal. It, it doesn't matter what other people think. He's asking them personally. So after studying uh, half of the book of Matthew, is it really any surprise that it's Peter who's the one that steps up and responds? He answers directly and in only 10 words. But look at those 10 words in Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There's two parts to Peter's answer. The Christ is the first one. Son of the living God is the second one. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. So uh, in effect, Peter has answered the first question, who is the son of man? Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited fulfillment of the prophecies of a king who would come and rescue God's people. And the second part is the dawning revelation that Jesus is the son of God. The Messiah is both the son of man and the son of God. He is fully man and he's fully God. It didn't take any time for Jesus to give the result of the test. Simon Bar-Jonah, a.k.a. Peter, had passed with flying colors. Look at Jesus' response in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Take note that Jesus calls him by his proper name, Simon Bar-Jonah. You'll see why this is important in just a moment. 
Jesus called him blessed because he didn't get it from his own logic or because somebody else gave him the answer. It's because God the Father revealed it to his heart. That's the only way that anyone can come to know God. It's the reason that the people had the wrong answer. They couldn't know the true identity of Jesus just by his miracles or his teaching. They also had had to have their hearts respond to God's revelation to them. And here's an amazing thing. God's plan includes me and you helping people come to this truth. He asks us to help people find and follow Jesus. So how do we do this? Okay, well, first uh, we follow Jesus, and then we do as he did. So what does that look like? The disciples walked with Jesus, the Son of Man. They came to know him, and by that I mean so much more than just the facts about him. They lived alongside him, and they witnessed his compassion, his love, his mercy, and so much more. They saw Jesus loving everyone, no matter who they were. He wasn't biased, prideful, power-hungry, or swayed by pressure, even from the most powerful people of his time. He chose people like uneducated fishermen and tax collectors, you know, everyday normal people. They knew a lot about him. But now God is revealing the most important part, the most important truth of who is Jesus. Do you know him? This is the most important question, the ultimate question you'll ever have to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? It's personal. Is he just a good man, a great teacher, an awesome leader? Or is he the son of God who's fully human and has come here to help and rescue us? I'll talk more about in a moment why this is such an important question and answer. When we know Jesus, we also need to follow him and follow his example. We need to pray for live with, and love the people that are in our lives. Not based on their position, their wealth, their health, their social status, but just because Jesus loves them and he wants us to love them. So knowing who Jesus is and then following God's direction requires us to listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit who lives within anyone who has confessed that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. So this is my next application question. How is knowing Jesus reflected in my life? Knowing Jesus changes us. People should see Jesus within us. There are a lot of people around us everywhere who need to know Jesus. And our job is to pray for God to direct us and then to obey him and helping people find and follow Jesus. God chose this moment, to reveal the truth, the answer to Jesus' question to Peter and the disciples. So now what? Well, we're about to find out in the next couple verses, but first I want to caution you that these verses, if taken out of context, can and have caused a lot of confusion. In fact, they are the source of some really bad teachings. So we need to remember to let Scripture interpret Scripture. 
And what do I mean by this? Well, the Bible is God's word, and therefore, it will never contradict itself. So if we interpret a passage, and then we find that it's contradicted in another part of the Bible, then we've made a mistake, and we need to do some more study. Sometimes we get so focused on a word or a phrase that we miss the larger point. We need to make sure that we stay on solid biblical ground. Let me share a story to help illustrate my point. Our family went on a family vacation back uh, to New York City back around 2008. And while we were there, we were like most everybody else. We used our feet and the subway uh, system for transportation. One day we needed to get from the far southern part of Manhattan near the World Trade Center Memorial to the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, which is north of, uh, of Central Park. It's too far to walk. So we had a map of the subway system, and the subway lines were color-coded. Okay, so the subway line closest to us was the red line. I took out my map and opened it up to find Cathedral Parkway in a red line, and here's what I saw on the map. And you can see there's an exit for Central Park Parkway. Uh, there, I've, I've highlighted with an arrow and a circle. Um, so once we exited the subway, I knew that we'd have to turn left, go to the west a few blocks, and our destination would be right there. So we descended into the bowels of the subway system. We got on a train, and we began our journey. And when we arrived at Cathedral Parkway, we got off, came back above ground, I turned left, and I was lost and <laughs> confused. Because this is what I saw. This is the map here. Ah, there you can see Cathedral Parkway. I've circled it. There's the exit. There's the red line. And that's the Hudson River. Um, something was wrong. I was absolutely sure that we needed to go left and go a couple of blocks, but I knew we couldn't. In fact, I got into a back and forth with my wife. Uh, she was convinced that we couldn't go that way. Uh, obviously, she was correct, but I was just having a hard time understanding how this could be. How could I make a mistake over something that was so simple? As it turns out, the subway system can be tricky if you're not careful. And as you can see by this map, the red line has a fork in it. I've highlighted it with the black arrow in the circle, but you don't really need that. Um, I had missed an important part when I read the map. Apparently, those three numbers in the little red dots, well, they're important. <laughs> We'd gotten on line one at the World Trade Center, and you can see that goes straight up. We should have got switched at the fork to either a line two or a line three subway train. The map was folded, and all I saw was a small part of it. I didn't see the fork or the other subway station. I needed to un unfold the map and get the full context of that part of the subway system in order to get to the right place. Okay, so with that in mind, let's read our verses. Matthew 16, 18, and 19. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Words are important, just like those three numbers in the little red dots. You have to pay attention. Jesus switches from Peter's real name, Simon Barjona, in verse 17. Remember, I told you to note that. To Peter, the name that he gave him in verse 18. Peter means small rock 
or a pebble in Greek. So Jesus uses a play of words or a pun in verse 18. Something like, and I tell you, you are a pebble, and on this rock I will build my church. He doesn't say, you are Simon Bar-Jonah, and on you I will build my church. Reading this to state that Peter is this rock, and this section refers only to him, uh, is a misunderstanding of what Jesus said. It's wrong. So what is this rock? Jesus is referring to Peter's answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The foundation of our faith is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So let's use the Bible to confirm that we are, in fact, getting the correct understanding. The prophet Isaiah specifically refers to this rock as a cornerstone. 20, Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Look, whoever believes will not be in haste. Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has looked forward and he's prophesied that Jesus is this precious cornerstone. And in Psalms, we see the prophecy that the precious cornerstone is rejected, just as Jesus is going to be rejected by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's already started. Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Later in Matthew, Jesus identifies himself as this precious cornerstone that was rejected, of whom Isaiah prophesied. So we now know from the Bible that this rock is the confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, the next part. What are the gates of hell? To begin, I think we need a little understanding of how warfare was conducted at the time that Jesus walked on the earth. Kings would build fortress cities within their domains, um, and it was for the protection of the citizens. If an invading army came near, the people in the surrounding area would flee to the fortress. For protection, they'd close the gates. The invading army would focus their attack on the weakest part of that fortress, the gates. Our fight is not against the things of this world. It's against evil forces working against God, the gates of hell. And Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are there as a defense against the invading army. So we, as Christians, are the invading army. We are on the attack. This is how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Our battle is spiritual and it isn't against people. I won't read it, but God also gives us spiritual armor, which is also described in this section of Ephesians. And toward the end of that um, section, he describes our weapons as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. These weapons are powerful, and they're capable of defeating our enemy and breaking down even the gates of hell. 
Finally, let's look at 2 Corinthians uh, before we get to our next point. This is chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Our weapons are the word of God and prayer. It's really important that uh, we know and apply this to our lives. So I'll ask this question. Is spending time in the word of God and prayer are our weapons? Then how prepared are you? The weapons, they have divine power to destroy strongholds. And what are these strongholds? Well, they're things raised against the knowledge of God, things like arguments, lofty opinions, even our own very thoughts, which we are to take captive uh, to obey Christ Jesus. Now we move on to the next thing in the verse, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. A key is used to lock and unlock something. When my daughter was a teenager, I'd give her the keys to the car. That, in effect, I was giving her permission to drive the car within the understood rules. I, she, the car didn't belong to her to do as, as she pleased. In other words, giving someone the keys to something is not giving them carte blanche, unless it's the master key. John quotes a prophecy by Isaiah in the book of Revelation. The apostle recognizes that Jesus maintains the authority to open and shut, and no one can do otherwise. Revelations 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, after all, Jesus tells us that he did only what the Father commanded. So everyone who has the keys to the kingdom of heaven, they're constrained to do only as the Father commands. The final thing here to remember is that they are the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so we remember Nate's definition from the beginning of our series uh, in Matthew. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is God's rule over the world and our participation in it with our whole hearts. So these keys are for followers of Jesus so that we can participate in God's rule over the world. They give us authority to act on God's behalf. That's what's meant by the binding and the loosing. But it doesn't give us authority to go outside God's will. I also need to point out something about uh, a two-word phrase there, shall be. In the original language, this is known as something as, as a perfect passive participle. Now, you don't have to know what a perfect passive participle is, but what you do need to know is that it doesn't exist in the English language. Therefore, it's not possible to get a completely correct translation of this verse in English. It would, to get a bit closer and still miss the mark, it would be also okay to take in, into consideration this translation that I got from a uh, footnote in an NIV study Bible. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Still not completely correct. It's like we decide, but God's already decided. Huh. So maybe think of it as 
working in agreement with God and remembering that God's sovereign choice always comes first. That's better. That's what Jesus did. Also, the use of the keys is broadly scoped. Whatever, that is all-encompassing authority. Back in Matthew 10, uh, verses 5 through 8, Jesus gave the disciples some authority over the lost sheep of Israel when he sent them out. They, they could do things like heal the sick, uh, cast out demons. And now, based on the confession of who is Jesus, he has, increases their authority to, by giving them the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now we get to who actually gets the keys. And again, please note that it's based on the confession of who is Jesus. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I really can't stress that point enough. So whoever makes the confession has the keys. It's as simple as that. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul calls us ambassadors, those with authority to act on, on behalf of Jesus as a representative of him. Later in Matthew 18, 18, Jesus is giving a teaching to the disciples and to those who will follow, like you and me here today, on how to handle discipline within the church. Matthew 18, 18. Truly, um, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He clearly gives authority to everyone, all of his followers, to do this. So to those who confess Jesus as their Savior, the Christ. Okay, that's the end of the tricky part. We have one last verse in this section before we move on to my final point. Matthew 16, 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This command was specifically for the disciples, and it was in effect only until they had reached Jerusalem and Jesus had died and rose again. We now have the privilege, in fact, we have the command of shouting this from the rooftops. Jesus is the Christ. After ensuring the disciples understand who he is, that they have the correct foundation, he tells them some rather startling news. And the final verse of our section for today is both the last verse of this series and the beginning verse of the next series. So we're going to dig into it a lot more then, but there's something in this verse which I need uh, in order to finish out our message for today. So let's read this final verse, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Directly after the wonderful news of giving new authority to his disciples, Jesus tells them that things are about to change and change drastically. Up until now, Jesus has been growing in popularity among most of the people. But as Mike mentioned a few weeks ago, the big guns from Jerusalem are beginning to take notice and they're aiming for him. Jesus knew exactly what was in front of him as he was heading to Jerusalem, and he did not try to avoid it. He knew he was destined to suffer many things and to be killed, but he also knew that he was going to rise on the third day. 
It's good to remember our big idea for this morning. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. But his purpose in coming is to die on our behalf. Just take a minute and consider this truth. Jesus knew it all. As he goes about every single day, he's aware of this fact. The people that he's living with, people he loves, he's healing, he's raising from the dead, that are walking with him, every one of them is going to turn their back on him. Judas, one of the 12, is going to betray him to the enemy. Simon, the one that Jesus just called blessed, the one who confessed Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, will deny even knowing him. You see, Jesus knew that they needed much more than just healings and miracles here on earth. They were sinners just like me and you. And we're all separated from God. And there's no way for us to fix that. Justice demands that there be a price that's paid for our sinfulness. And that's what he's going to do when he reaches Jerusalem. He'll suffer and he'll die in our place, in my place, in your place. And he'll do it because he is the Christ. He's also the perfect sacrifice because he is the son of the living God. He's going to take the punishment for our sin and he's going to give us his righteousness in return. This is why I said earlier that this question and the answer are so very important because having our sins uh, forgiven and having a right relationship with God both now and eternity depend upon it. Paul puts it this way in his letters to to the Philippians. It's at the end of a rather long thought where he's uh, saying how much uh, he would give up. He'd give up everything to gain Christ. So Paul continues in Philippians 3, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own but that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Have you done that? Have you confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Have you put your faith in him? It's personal. Your Messiah, your Savior, the one who died to take the penalty of your sins and give you his righteousness. If you haven't done that, you can do it right now here this morning. I encourage you. Tell him that you accept him as your Lord and Savior. As you consider your answer, remember that Jesus loves you no matter what's happened in your life. He's loved you when you haven't even liked yourself. There's absolutely nothing that you've ever done or could do that's going to cause him to love you any less or any more. His love is perfect, just like him. It doesn't change. Jesus wants to spend eternity with you in heaven. He wants you to experience his love, his joy, and his peace right now, right here on earth, no matter what's happening in your life. Maybe you feel like you've done something horrible, unforgivable, awful. If people knew, boy, they'd reject you. You're sure of it. 
Jesus won't. He knows all about it. He came and died on the cross to settle that score. He paid the price for you because he loves you more than you can imagine. Your answer's personal, but if you'd like to share it with me, I'd love to hear it after the service. If you're not sure what this means or you have questions about how to give your life to Christ, come up after the service. Don't be shy. I'd love to talk with you about it. I'll wrap up uh, by asking you these questions. Who do you say Jesus is? Take some time. Make sure that you have the right cornerstone, that you've got the correct answer to the ultimate question. And then, when you know Christ, how is knowing Jesus reflected in my life? Remember, a relationship with Jesus changes us. We're not the same. Our big idea, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. But his purpose in coming is to die on our behalf. Jesus knew what he'd faced. He tells his disciples that he um, is going to die. And now he tells them that they are part of the battle against the very gates of hell. But we have armor and we have weapons that will help us. So if spending time in the word of God and prayer are our weapons, then how prepared are you? I'll finish with a reminder that Jesus is fully man and fully God. He is our savior. He is the cornerstone on which his church is built. Make sure you have right, the right foundation on the one true cornerstone, Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's pray. Father God, I come before you this morning and we worship you and we praise you. Lord, we confess that you are the Christ, you are our savior. You're the one who came and died and rose again for us to pay the penalty of our sins. And you're also the son of the living God. So you have power to help us, to, to, to help us to live a life that, that reflects you to the people that you place in us. Lord, we ask that you just help us to trust you as we walk through everyday life and to be Jesus to the people around us and trust that you are the one who will work in their hearts. Father, you give us weapons of the word and, and prayer, and we ask that you would put a burning desire in our time to spend time there so we're prepared. We love you, Jesus. We ask that you would use us as vessels wherever we go, as ambassadors for you. We love you, Jesus. We pray this